Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Great. Uh, so, so who am I? So, so she shared a little bit. I'm a VC at Monso Ventures. So we focus on you know investing in startups that are going to transform millions of lives across Southeast Asia. But previously, you know, I was a founder. Uh, like I said, built a company from pre-seed to seed to Series A in sale. I built a pitch. I was a pitch for Conjunct Consulting, which many of you are familiar with. Uh, maybe not at SUTD, but maybe at NUS, NTU, and SMU. Um, and also had. Uh, I'm also an angel investor. Um, and so as an investor, both as an angel and as a VC, I've seen thousands of slide decks uh, and people pitch to me. And we also uh, happen to be the host of Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast, uh, which is at jeremyao.com. And it's ranked in the global top 10% as a podcast. So if you want to hear stories about how founders actually go through the pitches, uh, learn about their own uh, tough moments, as well as get better over time, um, in terms of a real no BS authentic way, then that's the podcast. Uh, yeah, you know, Bain consultant, national service, Harvard MBA, UC Berkeley, a bunch of awards along the way. Uh, I think for me, for those who want to know me a little bit more, I believe in three big things. Uh, I believe that growth, uh, both at a you know, business and organizational level and personal growth as leader really solves our problems. Um, so uh, it's not just the business growing, but also you as a leader growing on a personal basis is really key. Uh, second thing is I love to coach people to be great leaders. Uh, that's something that I find personally rewarding. And that's why I'm here today on Saturday uh, afternoon. Um, and I also believe that this too shall pass, which means that, you know, <laughs> whatever happens, happens. Whatever you learn, you learn. Whatever we present, we present, we go from there. Uh, I'm a father of a daughter. Uh, I love hiking, science fiction, and drinking tea, for instance. So I'll let you guys uh, know this who I am. What we're going to talk a little bit about is I'm going to talk about the context, which is really about context of Southeast Asia tech um, and unicorns and so, so forth, because I think that that's kind of a key macro view that everybody needs to have. Otherwise, people kind of get lost very quickly about why are we doing this. And then we'll talk about the pitch process in terms of how to do it, but also why you want to learn how to do it. And because, you know, I also remember the time when I was like, I don't need to pitch, you know, so, so forth. And after that, we're going to go into very detailed deck dive into the pitch. And I'm going to assume and talk to you as if I was talking to a founder, um, not as a student, not as a young person, whatever. I believe that anybody can build a company, but I'm going to assume that whatever you don't understand, you ask the question um, in the place I have, or that you go Google this afterwards, or when you run across a problem in one year, two years, five years, 10 years, then you remember that I articulated this at a point of time. And then you know how to Google it again and solve it at that point in time. And lastly, I'll give you some reflections I have about the actual process of pitching, which is things I've observed in myself in terms of how I improved, but also how I've seen other people do well or not do well uh, in terms of the actual pitching process. So that's more of a story time. And then lastly, there'll be Q&A. Again, I'll be going through the questions um, that are there. So we'll go from there. So the reason why we're all here around the table is because all of us are interested in tech in some ways, right? So 
the context of the macro environment is that internet is the new electricity, right? And what I mean by that is that it is uh, something that's fundamental. So you go back, uh, you know, hundred years ago, electricity was coming out and it was crazy. Like there was only one, there was normal companies and there was like electricity companies. <laughs> that's it. You know, General Electric, you know, all these you folks, they were, there's something called electricity and only companies that built electricity were called, they were called big electricity back then, right? Um, and then electricity came on to transform everything, right? So everything became electrified, right? Um, washing machines, <laughs> irons, uh, the trains, buses, people were trying to put, do everything in electricity at that point in time. Some succeeded, some did not, but that transformed a whole generation, right? Uh, where even our parents and our grandparents had the benefit of electricity. So internet is really the new electricity where it's a fundamental shift uh, in the fundamental layer of how we work, how we operate, and how we collaborate. What's also important is that the reason why we're talking about this is because startups, whatever you define startups, have attacked incumbents to create trillions of dollars of value. So lots of big words, but what it means is that, you know, before electricity, there was pre-electricity companies, and then there were companies that used electricity, right? Today, we have technology companies and the companies that are not coping well with technology. Um, and what's interesting today is that we have you know, startups, which are even faster versions of this, right? That are always aggressively competing to create value, to make things better for other people. And last thing, of course, is that we already know these two stories a little bit um, in America, right? Or in developed countries, whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, but really, I think we're all here around the table is because we ourselves in Southeast Asia are benefiting from being part of that new tech frontier for startups, for innovation, for thinking. And this is really a huge benefit that just did not exist before because the truth was, you know, just, you know, 60 years ago, we were going through a war, right? You know, World War II, right? We were just rebuilding from war. So we couldn't even think about getting up uh, the internet or technology or even being entrepreneurial. We were just trying to figure out how to lay out basic infrastructure. So all of us around the table are really benefiting from the fact that we just get to build startups. We get to talk about pitch decks. We get to live and work in an environment over Zoom where we're not having this macro environment where we're scrambling uh, to handle shelter, food, and safety, right? And therefore, we can be thinking about technology, startups, and pitch decks. And the truth is, if you look at many macro regions around the world, there are many frontiers economies that don't have startups because they cannot or do not have the ability or mindshare or space or safety for people to think about startups. And even within Southeast Asia, we all know that different geographies and for all of us around the table, we're primarily located in Singapore. So we benefit because there are other parts in Southeast Asia that do not get to think about startups, that do not get to think about technology, that do not get to think about how to pitch. And so fundamentally, this time period is particularly good for people in Singapore and some parts of Southeast Asia and broadly Southeast Asia versus the rest of the world to be thinking about technology as a frontier for us to build and create value together. So that's really key. Um, and something to be thankful for as well. So what that means is that we talk about startups, right? And everyone's like, what is a startup? You know, is Grab a startup? Okay, well, it's kind of crazy, right? Because Grab is like huge now and everybody uses Grab. So is that a startup anymore? Well, it was a startup. Um, is a startup that's uh, a small provision shop starting out, but happens to be a gentry person, right? Is that 
a startup, right? They're using startup principles. So I think one thing to think about is that, you know, based on all the questions they just reflected, I want to kind of simplify the question. We just, I'm going to define a startup as a newly established business, right? So it's a business that is starting out and is new and that's it, right? And <laughs> that's a startup. Um, because in the past, historically, startups were like, oh, use technology. Well, everybody uses technology to do a startup these days. So startup is a newly established business. I think for someone who's talking about social entrepreneurship, et cetera, which I'm very comfortable with and you know, very, uh, I do think about quite a bit, is um, thinking about what is a unicorn, right? So that's the end goal, right? So a startup worth over a billion dollars. Um, I got to ask for everybody to switch on their videos again. So thank you. Well, everyone, please switch on your videos. Let's see how many more people have not switched on the videos. 27 videos on this thing. So, okay, thank you. Um, so I guess the fundamental question is, if you raise like over a, mil a million dollars of C capital from a top VC in America, what are odds that you become a unicorn? So um, there's one in five, one in 10, one in 20, one in 30, one in 40. All right, so uh, I'm going to look at the one, two, three, four, five, six, 12, the 15, 16 people who have. Okay, how many people say one in five? Just raise your hand. How many people say one in 40? Raise your hand. So that's uh, three. How many people say one in 30? Okay, and one in 10, and then one in 20. Okay, so pretty much it feels like an even dispersion. So I'll say roughly like, okay, no one body won't put one in five, but so I'll say about 25% each in what, 10, 20, 30, 40, right? So roughly across everybody. So um, it's a good question, right? And the short answer is if we define that as the value to achieve that, Historically, is that it's one in 40, right? Um, and what that means is that fundamentally, on a roulette wheel, this, depending on whether you're using European or American roulette, is either 37 or 38 wheels, right? Numbers on a wheel. So actually, you have better odds of going to a roulette wheel, all your life savings, <laughs> and however much time that you have for your lifetime earnings for the next five years, right? And put it on one number on roulette than it is to build a startup with the goal to build a technology startup that's worth over a billion dollars. And I'm talking about the US, by the way, right? We're not talking about Southeast Asia, where you can argue that the companies on average may be smaller, right? In terms of returns. We're not talking about capital markets, et cetera, et cetera, right? So for example, if you try to build a technology startup in Antarctica, then the odds are probably way worse than one in 40, right? So one in, Amer in America, it's one in 40, right? So that's how you should be thinking about that all the time. You have that back in your mind, like what are the odds of success, you know? There's a becoming a big company like Grab or GoTo or C Group, et cetera, et cetera. So what that means is that every startup, as a result, to get to that billion dollar outcome, again, you know, has to crawl through three stages of it, right? And not everybody makes it, right? It's really about uh, going through the jungle, right? Going through a dirt road and going through the highway. So every company goes through those three stages. And that's really key for you to remember that every startup is going through those three phases. At a jungle phase, it's very much saying, what in the world am I building, right? What am I actually caring about? 
what is it that I'm actually trying to achieve? Is it something that's worth building? Do I want to build it? Are there people want to join me with? In other words, what is the direction I should be going and figuring out? And that's super key to remember because a lot of us, when we talk about startups, we're talking about this type of startup, right? It's like, oh, I'm building a startup. Your friend looks at you and then you're like, what's your startup? And it's like, I don't know, right? So that's a key question that you're going to have to be thinking about yourself. It's like, what phase am I in? Jungle stage. There's a lot of us around the table here, right? building a pitch deck, et cetera, et cetera. When you get to the dirt road, dirt road basically says that you're basically reaching somewhere where you're starting to see the path. You, know, you have some customers, you roughly know what you're trying to achieve and you know what is the rough direction you need to do. You roughly know what you don't want to do and you know what you should do and you know what you're currently doing and at what speed. And then thirdly, of course, is the highway where you're trying to build and say, you know exactly what strategy is. You have the people on board. You know where exactly what direction you're going in. Your job is to build the highway so that you can drive as many trucks through as possible. And that's when you take in a ton of growth capital and you have all the newspapers will come out and congratulate you and say that you're doing a great job, et cetera. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you achieve the exit or market, but that's that size, right? The scale, right? And that's something you should always be thinking about is the jungle, the dirt road, and the highway. Those are the three phases that are there. And that's important for you to be thinking about all the time because people get confused all the time because they're like, Grab is a startup. And I'm like, yeah, it is a startup because startup is a startup, technology startup. But it's in highway mode, right? They're just trying to figure out how to do things. But now some initiatives within Grab actually right now are in the jungle or dirt road phase, right? So they have different projects when they try to enter a new market, when they try to enter a new vertical, then it's very important for the people within a team to not pretend that they are all in highway mode, right? So for example, if C entered Latin America, right? And with Shopee, et cetera, then they have to tell themselves like, look, I'm not as you know, secure or aware about what's going on as if I'm doing a highway. My job is to have bring in people who are jungle explorers, who are going to land there and figure out how to do a navigation exercise to get out of the jungle and bash away through for a dirt road to emerge for other people to follow. And that's really key because all of us around the table are thinking to ourselves like, oh, we want to be in and then I was like, say, well, which part of tech? <laughs> joining Grab today is so different from joining Google and Facebook, which is even an order of magnitude larger versus joining a Series A startup, right? Uh, like Spendmo or joining your friend startup who is maybe right in this classroom with you, right? So there are different stages of that startup. It's important for you to be super aware about, therefore, not just the startup, but also aware about what you're trying to achieve uh, in terms of your individual role and also being aware <laughs> that companies will die along the way. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about that 40 in America, right? Trust me, all 40 or even more companies, when you talk about seed stage, right? Honestly, seed stage basically implies from, when you get a different top VC, implies that you're somewhere around the dirt road. You're in that transition towards the dirt road, right? And the jungle before that is way worse. There's like hundreds or thousands of people who are just have ideas, right? Ideas and ideas and ideas. Then in the middle, there's about 40 of them at any one time, right? As they reach all the way to the end of transitioning towards the highway, you know, there'll be like 20, you know, 10, five, and only one of them will manage to get all the way to the end of the highway, right? And have that billion dollar exit. And it's key for you to be thoughtful about because then you're going to be thinking to yourself, am I in a situation where I understand what the operating model of the company is in terms of the requirements versus what am I advocating today? 
And that's really key because you're going to see a lot of people. You see a lot of highway people talking to you in the jungle mode. And then, and then you're like, what is the relevance of this advice? And I've been there before. I'm just like, they're like, Jeremy, you got to hire all these people because it's a no-brainer. And I'm like, yo, we're nowhere near there, right? Um, and your judgment about what's relevant to you at what stage is super key. And so that hopefully provides you some context about why we in Southeast Asia get to think about technology and why we are thinking about what the odds of success actually are, the start goal of people signing our team versus the end goal, which is a billion dollar outcome. And lastly, being thoughtful that going from point A to point B requires three major stages of the jungle, dirt road, and highway, and being thoughtful about that path. So that's really the macro environment. And so what that brings us down to is really saying like, okay, if we know this about Southeast Asia tech and unicorns and a pathway, et cetera, so what are the benefits and why should we do a pitch? And the crux of it is that there are three major benefits that are really important in pitching. And most of us around the table, and we saw that a little bit in the question and answer session was like, we look at it as like, pitching is to get money, right? To convince people. But I think the most important thing to think about pitching is this, is that you are articulating the future to improve your business logic. Because if you already built a billion dollar company, you don't need to pitch anymore, right? To some extent, you already have the answer. You already have numbers. You already have the data. You just show to everybody, and you know, if Mark Zuckerberg walked in and said, hey guys and girls, let's build uh, a billion dollar company and I already have a billion dollar company. Then, and then he's like, Tan, uh, you know, Zen Sheen, right? Or Dennis, I'd like to pitch you guys about Facebook. And then you'll be like, oh wait, you don't need to pitch me about Facebook. I already use Facebook. Everybody uses Facebook. It's a, you know, more than a billion dollar company. You don't need to pitch me, right? So why do you need to pitch? The reason why you pitch is that at the end of the day, you are articulating the future of your business. And I always tell people, it's just like, that's crazy, right? Because, you know, that's what we kind of do in our brainstorming and our whiteboards and so, so forth. But being able to make that summarized, concise, and clear is really difficult for a lot of people. And so being able to articulate it helps the future, but also helps you improve the business logic, right? Um, and the second thing is that being able to pitch consistently, and obviously later on talk about a fundraising deck and so on and so forth, but pitching in, is a form of sales, but it's there to attract customers, teammates, and supporters, right? And everybody has to make that bet to say, why do I care about you as a person? Why do I care about you as a business owner? Why do I care about you as a startup leader and founder? So you are here to attract customers, teammates, and supporters say, yes, join my team because it makes sense. Even though there is no data to prove that I've been able to achieve it or that I will be able to achieve it. And then lastly, it's really about partnering with capital allocators. So a lot of people who are out fundraising often have the situation where they're saying, oh, the reason why I'm pitching, is I am trying to achieve money. I'm trying to get money, right? For my thing, for my idea, et cetera. And what they forget is that on the other side of that person, whether it's a bank, it's a debt, venture debt, VC, et cetera, is that, you are actually partnering with them. You're making a, a transaction, but you're also building a relationship with them. Because what they are saying is, I will provide you capital in advance of proof, data, and so, so forth, in order for you to build this actual business, right? And that's really key because I always remember, and I always had a story, is like, you know, my you know, great-grandfather, my grandfather tried, and we're working on a plantation, right? And so they had to save and save and save because nobody would give them capital to build a little provision shop, right? 
in Malaysia back back then. And so, even if they were hardworking, even if they could attract customers, no one would ever give them capital, right? And so we're really lucky today where today the definition of a pitch is means, oh, instead of like having a great business already or whatever it is, it's I can build a slight deck. I have some experiments. I have the stability, I have the reputation, and that's enough to get millions of dollars of capital, for example, to be in consideration to fund my idea, right? And that's kind of bonkers if you think about it, because the truth is the difference between our generation and that generation that, that could not get any capital at all is effectively 50 years, right? Think about that. That's how crazy it is, right? So pitching is important because it allows us to articulate the future, to improve the logic, to attract the teammates, the customers, the supporters, and the partner with capital allocators who can help you grow the business together. And so why it kind of goes back to, and someone's asking about what are the benefits of pitching, right? And I want to say is that the, this process is really super key, is that pitching is a means to an end, right? So a lot of people are like, okay, what do I need to say in a pitch to get money, right? And I always like, yo, the first job is to discover, choose, and build a great business, right? You know? And that's really the big assumption that we're going to have around this table. And I'm sure it's going to come up later um, in the meeting that we have. Because when you build a pitch, to some extent later on, it assumes that you have a real business or that you can deliver the business, right? Um, and so what that means is you have to find a real problem that actually exists. And we all know there's lots of problems that are fake. They don't exist, right? You know? And you've heard that before. Uh, maybe your friend pitches you and say, hey, Jeremy, um, let's build an NFT of um, your face on a piece of paper uh, and we're going to sell it, right? And then you're like, okay, who wants a piece of paper with my face? I mean, I mean I'm not a piece of art. I'm not valuable, I don't have intrinsic value. So you're, is it a real problem? Does, do people really want a picture of me, of all people? Probably not, right? But if you're talking about, hey, celebrities, right? Yeah, of course, you know, Scarlett Johansson, you know, John Cena, so many other folks, they write, they sign photographs of themselves all the time. And that, those are valuable to people, right? Collectibles, right? And so it's a real problem because if you're a fan of, you know, Tony Stark slash, you know, Robert Downey Jr., then you want that. That's a problem. You want to have, you have a real problem. You don't have that signature. I don't think anybody has a real problem right now saying, I want Jeremy's face, right? On a piece of paper. So thinking about what the real problem is. But the other part that you have to do is think about for this group is, do you want to solve it? Do you actually want to solve this problem? And I've seen so many people pitching great ideas, but I just look at them and it's like, we had a conversation it's like, do you really want to solve this problem of all problems? There's so many problems to solve in the world, right? Every year, there are thousands of startups being launched and many successful startups will happen and become scalable. But is this your problem? Is this the problem that you want to solve? And the next to think about is therefore is also, if you find a real problem and you want to solve that problem, then figuring out a great solution, right? Because the truth is, if you can't figure out a great solution to it, to some extent, then what in the world are you pitching for? What are, are you proposing? What are you selling? And lastly, we're talking about achieving product market fit, right? Which is talking about what exactly 
is a fit between the solution and the actual problem and economics needed for it to be successful. And so that's something to be thinking about, about how to discover, choose, and start building a great business, whatever it is. It can be a social enterprise. It can be a nonprofit. It can be a business. But the truth is anybody who's thinking about pitching, your fundamental role is to build a great business. And pitching is a means to an end to support that business. It's not the other way around. It, a lot of people sometimes see, look at it as like, oh, the VC is available. And so we look at the VC as if they're like some parent or teacher or exam, right? And then they say, come in and say, and I think we heard some of those questions that we had here. It's like, if a VC wants this, how do I achieve that thing for that person? And I'm like, whoa, you know, that's not it. You know, um, they don't have any reality. They don't have any truth. They're not very smart. I can tell you that. And I'm one of them. Like at the end of the day, VCs are saying, making a choice about which investment to make, but they don't understand your business the same way that you do. So to fundamentally know, understand, and decide that this is the business that I'm going to build, not just for half a year because it's a school, for a school project, not for one year, not for two years, not for five years, but for 10 years and 15 years, right? Because if you are successful, you are going to be working on this problem for the next 10 years of your life. Think about it, 10 years. For everybody around the table, where were you 10 years ago, right? Think about that. What happened 10 years ago? Well, if you're in university, my assumption right now is that, you know, if you're 22, right? Or 21, let's just say on average. 10 years ago, you're 11 years old, right? That had a lot happens in 10 years. So now you get to choose. You get to choose the problem that you really love. Because the alternative is that if you choose to build a business that is not something that you love, that you don't want to do, then the fundamental fact is, you know, either you succeed and you're very unhappy about your success, which is pretty unlikely, or you end up uh, failing and building something because you failed because you never loved the problem. And the truth is, you can't pitch something that you don't love. I can tell you all day long about why I think my wife is great. I can tell you all the reasons why my baby is cute. If you ask me to say, make a deck about pitching someone else's kid, I will be like, whoa, this is a lot harder, right? Does that make sense? Because it's someone else's kid, right? Like my kid, I know 10 reasons, 100 reasons, 1,000 reasons about why my baby is cuter than everybody, why my baby deserves ABC. But I talk about someone else's kid. I'm like, whoa, like there's an order of magnitude difference, right? So same thing for problems. You got to be in love with the problem because when you love the problem, then you can actually pitch well. That's, people are like, oh, how do I show more passion in my pitch? And I'm like, if you're passionate about a problem, you'll be passionate in your pitch. That's it. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you love crypto? Then trust me, everybody pitches crypto like crazy, right? And they pitch with passion. And now the question is, how do they improve their technique? How to articulate the sphere? how to talk about the upside and downsides, all those things are true, but you can't replace that passion, right? You know, um, there's no way you can teach that passion. So because at the end of the day, you get to choose, you get to choose the company you build. Now we're going to talk about the pitch, but again, it's a subset of activity where you're preparing, practicing, delivering. And lastly, you, after you do your pitch, you, know, you fundraise, whatever. Look, the truth is you're going to go back to building a business. So you're going to build test experiments, you're going to incorporate the learnings from your pitch, from the experiments, from the customers, from the VCs, from the market. And then you keep pitching, right? You know? So once you start pitching, you never stop pitching. You just end up presenting more and more and more, but you just keep improving your pitch over and over time. 
So I think someone mentioned earlier, it's like, oh, it feels scary, right? It feels like there's a, you know, how do I get it? The tone of it. And so the truth is, every time you pitch, you're getting better and better. It's a skill, not an art. Um, it's not a science. It's practice. It's a skill. Just like you learn, I learn improv. Just like you learn drama. Just like you learn the computer. It's a skill that you just do over and over time. And then you build your own style and your own approach. So, uh, what we're going to go through is now go through a deck. Um, and what we're going to go through at a high level is what, like, you know, the slides that you need to have. So obviously you have a cover slide. We're not going to go into that. I assume you can make a cover slide, the company logo and everything. We'll talk about market problem, the market opportunity, um, your solution, the team, the traction, the comp competition, the financials. Um, and lastly, the ask, right? The capital that you're going to use. So that's at the end of the day about, honestly, about eight to nine slides that you really need to have. Anything else is just extra detail, extra supporting facts, but these are the core things you're going to have to cover. And I want to say that, you know, this is very much, uh, there's in, in the appendix, there's credit to the sources that I have. I'm not pretending that I knew and did all of this. This is very much a learning from other folks who have also presented this in the past and future as well. Um, so. Market problem. The first question they have is, and this is something that is super duper key, right? Is what's the problem that you're actually solving? And you have no idea how many slides I've seen decks that do not talk about this or they end up skipping it. They put a slide because they think it's something to be done. I think only 10% of the decks I've seen actually, actually talk about this well. And this is like slide one, by the way, right? Um, and I can't underemphasize, I have to emphasize how important that you get this right. And if you think about it, it's not just a communication issue, but it's also a logic issue, right? Which is a business logic. Are you solving a real problem that you want to have? So you have to show the pain of the problem. Don't just say it, don't just whatever it is, you know. You just have to be very, 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 very clear that this is a problem. And you can't create that man. You can't say something like, oh, if I build it and solve the problem for them, then people will demand it. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> what are we talking about, right? So what's the problem that's actually being solved, right? So if Claudia loves llamas, then turns out that there's a group of people around the world who love llamas, right? So you can go out and say, llamas are a problem for people who are like Claudia, show the need for people who like that as a cover picture and so, so forth. There's not enough llama stuff, right? You know, there's not enough llama pillows, toys, et cetera. So globally, <laughs> there's a Reddit thread called r slash llamas and they can't get enough llama stuff. So that's a problem, right? Uh, there's no one-stop shop. How big a problem that is, we, have to, we can debate, we can discuss but you have to be crisp about what that problem is, right? Uh, versus if you said, oh, the problem is people, the world does not have enough llamas. And then everyone's kind of like, what? <laughs> you know, like the world, I don't want a llama. Jeremy doesn't want a llama. Dennis doesn't want a llama, right? Diana doesn't want a llama, right? So the question is, well, who are the people that want that? And then talk about current solutions and problems. Why is it that it is, doesn't work? What doesn't work right now for the problem? Because a lot, I see a lot of people like, okay, I mean, you know, 
and it happens all the time. So people are like, okay. And it basically they choose a problem that's already solved, right? So it's a big problem. So people say something equivalent of like, oh, people want, you know, um, okay, I'm going to change it. But the equivalent of it would be like, someone would say like, the problem is people want jeans, right? You know, they need clothes to wear pants. All right, this is equivalent. And then I'm like, whoa, but isn't that solved by, you know, Uniqlo or Levi's or every other Chinese brand on the market? Like, how are you solving the problem, right? So, and the way it's currently solved is good enough or even better or superior because it's brand, it's cost, it's a good price, it's available everywhere, everybody already has it. So being thoughtful about that is super key. And so you need to solve what your client's number one problem is. So what I'm trying to say here is, don't try to solve someone's number two problem, number three problem, number four problem. Like, like there's really a fast way to not get anywhere. So just be thoughtful about that. Is so for example, um, you know, I thought I saw a great idea. Um, I'm trying to say what can I say about it, but let's just say like, uh, for if you look at supplements, right, um, and you think about supplements, is that all of us are happy supplements, right? So all of us like, I buy supplements, you buy supplements, everyone buys supplements. But he identified a key requirement. He said, for people who are, you know, believe in certain dietary requirements, right? So I need to be halal, right? Because of my faith or my background, because I'm in a country that does so. Actually, a lot of supplements are not compliant, right? They're not halal. They're not halal certified for sure. But they also contain lots of products, right? That are from other animals, et cetera, that are not compliant or not clearly verified that it is. And there's no custody of the whole chain to make sure that it's not contaminated along the way. So the deck was very simple, right? It's like for people of this background, we provide certified supplements that solve that problem. And I said to myself, I said, genius. The Americans are not solving it because they don't care, right? if it's kosher or halal or new requirements. But for people in certain categories, that's their requirement, right? It is their number one problem, which is that if I'm eating supplements, but I don't know what's in it, I will prefer to switch to supplements that are compliant. Uh, and that's my number one problem, right? At the moment of me taking the supplement. So being thoughtful about the problem is so key over and over again. Being clear about the problem is the fastest way to either... get the funding, get the support, get you know, the teammates that you need to have. Or it can be the difference between everybody just not getting it and the rest of the slides is a giant wash. Um, and the way you can tell it's a great problem slide is when you articulate the problem, everybody knows what the solution is. Like, I have seen people like articulate a problem and then everyone knows what the solution is going to be, right? You know, it doesn't make sense. Like, and it's like, then the question is how to achieve it, et cetera. So what's the problem, right? When you define the problem slide, you say it in such a way that's so crystal clear whatever it is, right? Um, so for example, if you look at the fusion startup, nuclear fusion, right? So they're saying, we can make clean energy with no carbon, no whatever. So they're talking about just solutions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what it is to say is like, look, the world needs energy and you need it really, you know, but there's not enough energy that is, because it's getting more and more expensive. And we have all these form factors for energy. And then we put a slide there. It's like, yeah, if you define the problem as how do we have 
the world does not has expensive energy that's very carbon centric, right? And has a very has a very large form factor, right? That can only be built in certain places with very high capital expenditure. The moment you say it that way, you're like, the solution is either going to be solar cells or nuclear fusion, right? So it's almost like clear what the solution is going to be. So I think I'm going to spend a lot of time on this slide. Um, and when we go through mentorship, et cetera, to me, this is like I'm going to zero in on. Like, is this a problem worth solving? And is this the person's number one problem? And if it's not clear, then do we sharpen the target customer? Do we sharpen the problem articulation? Do we sharpen your approach? <laughs> or do we just change the business entirely? The next is, what is the market opportunity, right? And so it goes back to a billion dollar company. If you are trying to build a billion dollar company, then this problem has to be worth at least a billion dollars of pain, right? To someone out there. So think about what your total addressable market, what's your real target market size, being clear about what you're targeting. So for example, we talked about halal supplements, for example, right? Well, the truth is he's not targeting the whole supplements market, right? But neither is he targeting uh, just one country or two countries. So he's saying, these are all the people who have this dietary requirement, right? And they mostly do not buy supplements because they're concerned about all these reasons, right? And therefore, I believe the total market size of this is going to be large. And you just lay out the logic, right? So define a target client in this case. So this person has a dietary requirement because why? Because of faith, because of choice, so on and so forth. They are probably not a child because a child doesn't eat supplements. They're probably not elderly because they may not be clear about why you want to buy supplements. They may be a people of a certain income and profile class, but these are the customers that we can see and we can paint that picture of that, right? And then talk about why now, right? Why is this the moment for us to build and support this requirement? And then of course, we talk about your solution demo. And so this is a slide that I find that most people end up spending the most time on this slide. Like I've seen so many decks and they primarily don't talk about the previous two problems. They spend all their time talking about solutions. Like we have built a great company with this technology and you know, there's all kinds of things, right? You know, it's like we've built a social network built on uh, NFTs, built on crypto, built on X using this and that. And we're faster, smarter, da, da, and then, and then you're like, okay, but what's the problem, right? What's the size of the problem? So so this slide is something that most people are focused on building. Uh, and when you do show it, therefore, I think the key thing is to show what does it actually look like, right? Which is what everyone does. But also show how someone is going to use the platform, right? Use the service. And that's really key. Show how someone's going to use that thing. Paint the picture of how people's going to use it. And lastly, talk about why is it better for the client at the end of the day, which is so key. Is it better? Is it faster? Is it cheaper? Right? Like, and so many people just don't do that. They're like, okay, here's the platform and we don't know who the customer is, but it's, you know, the technology is faster. And you're like, okay, does the customer need to be faster, right? Um, so that's something to be thoughtful about, right? Which is uh, thinking about what that is. And so, for example, we look at today, for example, we talk about quick commerce, right? So a lot of guys, folks are like, okay, if I go on online shopping, I can get something within, you know, two to three weeks, right? Do online shopping. But if we do grocery shopping, things will arrive within three days, right? So that's there. So the question is, when you do quick commerce, is like, if I need stuff to arrive within 15 minutes, we have to think through ourselves and say, what things do we need to arrive in 15 minutes? What things do we need to arrive in one hour? What things do we need to arrive in you know, three days, right? 
So if, say, uh, Jing Kai wants to buy a sack of rice, right? For does he need it in 50 minutes? Or does he need it in three days? And so painting the story of how the customer is using this quick commerce is going to be key uh, because it lets people understand like, okay, you know, why is it better? Because uh, Nigel Jinkai might prefer to have cheaper rice because when you buy rice, you buy in bulk, right? You may want it to be cheaper, but you don't need to arrive it within three days. Oh, sorry. We don't need to arrive it within uh, 50 minutes. So there's a requirement. Whereas for someone like Kelly may require, for example, you need headache medication, right? Because you have a headache and it's at 2 a.m. at night when you have a headache, right? So if you want to buy headache medications at 2 a.m., nothing's available and you have to get it now. You can't wait for three, you know, three days for the headache medication to arrive, right? So that's something to be thoughtful about is what's that story of solution, how it actually plays out. Next is talking about the team, right? Um, so the core team is key. A lot of, and I think I just actually just saw a presentation on Friday where, you know, this didn't talk about a team, right? And then it's like, whoa, like who's building this company? So photos, any relevant experiences, your leadership experiences, your education. Obviously, you know, you don't have to write this you know, long story, but you know, one of the two, two to three bullet points, right? And the core of what you're trying to achieve is, you know, people put out this team and everything, but, and I'm just like, Okay, I get that sometimes it's like, okay, I get your team is impressive, but so what, right? <laughs> you know, but, um, and then I think you also see a lot of slides where people are like, they write it in a way where, okay, you know, is this facts, but it's not relevant. It doesn't tell me like, why are you the right team who can do this? You get what I mean? Like, do I need to know that, um, you know, Yu Chen and Jeremy are co-founders and both of them, you know, met at improv class, right? You know, and love improv, for example. And then if the startup was like, oh, we're building an improv, you know, you know, platform for the world, then that's relevant. But if I'm building a nuclear fusion platform, then, you know, the bullet point of improv is totally irrelevant, right? Um, if, uh, so that's something to be thoughtful about, to be thinking about all of the time. So, what you're trying to articulate and share is say at the end of the day, we together have the right skills to achieve this plan. And of course, sometimes when you do the slide, it's, sometimes it's obvious, right? Maybe it's like, I want to build um, a great company, right? Let's say, you know, Saraf and I are building a company and it's quite clear that both of us are based here, for example, but we want to build a company in, you know, just talking about France for some reason, right? So Saraf and I were like, we're going to build a company in France. We're both not French, right? We no experience French, but we think it's a great idea. Then obviously the team slide is going to be quite clear. Like, hey, do we have the right skill set? So it'll be on us to articulate and say, and don't try to pretend and try to write a lot of words and say like, oh, Jeremy suddenly knows a lot of French, but he doesn't, you know? Uh, like, you know, don't try to like exaggerate the thing, but just say like, hey, if we don't have the team right now, then fine, we're going to look for a French person to add to the team. It's better for us to be, have that direct conversation all the time. Um, and obviously we'll talk about traction, right? So performance, et cetera. So what have you achieved over time? And obviously, you know, when you first I assume everyone here, I assume no one's a billionaire yet or a millionaire yet. That's why we're here in this conversation. So very much in the early stage. So what's really key in this traction is talk about what is the timeline? When did you found a company? These are the key milestones that we have achieved so far. And a lot of people will start using a lot of what I call soft traction. Um, 
which is like you know, accelerator programs. We achieved this reward. We won a startup competition. You know, uh, we attended a hack launch with Jeremy, and Jeremy Al said, "This is a thumbs up." You know, for the presentation. You know, this is a soft traction. But what's key is that we need to have hard traction, right? Which is like, you know, we're actually growing fast. We do have clients. We are making money. We do have brand name clients that are working with us. We have, we're growing. We have a future that more people want to join. Um, and look at the results, right? Uh, and then the next thing is, so hard traction is always more important than soft traction. Then it's really key for you. And that's why I talk about how as business operators, we're here to build a company as fast as possible. So if between, you know, uh, Mason and Diana, right? Diana? Diana. Diana, first one. Between Diana and Mason, for example, if Mason is, comes in with a bunch of soft traction on a, sli on a slide, right? So it's like, you know, number one award, you know, both that most likely to succeed, et cetera. But Diana is like, okay, I already have 100 customers and I'll give me $1,000 each. Then all of us are like, well, it's quite clear who's further along, right? Does it make sense? Diana probably has a better company than Mason because Mason is just like, okay, I only have a pitch deck and a bunch of stuff, right? And so a lot of people kind of like really forget about this crux. It's like building the hard traction is really, really the core mandate. And a lot of people actually feel like it's unfair, right? Because a lot of people are like, oh, it's super unfair. Like, why did that person have a pitch deck and be able to raise money, but I can't? And then I'm like, well, because that company started four years before you and they have more results than you. So they didn't share you the pitch deck, but you know, this is what it is, right? Um, so just be thoughtful, you know, what, what data are you showing here? The soft versus hard, right? Hard traction. Um, and then also talk about quality of the business, right? So our business metrics. So number of customers, total revenue, lifetime value, decreasing cost. Like there's a bunch of stuff that basically shows the quality of that growth, right? Um, so that's really important for you to be thinking about. So the best companies will show like hard traction, and it'll show that there's high quality of that traction growth that's important. And then you talk about competitors, right? Market fit versus competitors. So it's really important for you to show how you fit in the landscape versus competitors. And I've seen so many, I literally had another company and I was like, hey, who are your competitors in X? And then they were like, we have no competitors. <laughs> and I was like, okay, right. You know, um, so there's always competitors out there. Um, so how do you fit into it? Why are you going to be the winner versus the direct indirect competitor? So what's a direct competitor versus an indirect competitor, right? There's a really key understanding. A direct competitor is saying that they look exactly like you, right? Um, so for example, would be a direct competitor could be, let's talk about a jeans thing, right? Let's say I want to build technical jeans, right? You know, it's for people who work from home and they want to wear something that looks like jeans on camera, but are not jeans, right? Um, and we're targeting guys, right? Because guys, you know, are wearing shorts and terrible stuff and other people are just dressed better on average. I literally saw a startup that was pitching that way, right? So a direct competitor would be a company that's tackling that same thing, which is at the leisure, that's what they call it, right? Athletic leisure, clothes. Uh, like the Lululemon, right? But for guys, basically, um, those would be exact competitors that look exactly the same. So there's a bunch of direct competitors that are doing the similar approach. But actually, they're indirect competitors, right? And the indirect competitors is called Nike, uh, Levi's, you know, anything that you could wear, right? You know, um, 
So there's a lot of indirect competitors. Uniqlo, uh, they're not exactly approaching the, the problem from the same thing. But for a person who's at home, you know, on Zoom, wearing pants, you know, they can wear shorts, you know, they can wear different things, right? So just be thoughtful about direct versus indirect competitors. And the truth is, uh, that's really key for you to be thinking about all the time. So how much capital have they raised? You know, you have to know them like the back of your hand, right? Why are they good? Why are they bad? You know, but the truth is at the end of the day, you know, your biggest competitor all the time is really the status quo, right? Which is like the default behavior, right? So the truth is for, uh, you know, many, many, for a lot of them, what they're wearing at home is FBTs from the army, right? So we've seen that probably like a lot, right? So yeah, the status quo is like they bought 10 of them during army, right? And they haven't gotten around to changing it. So the status quo is the incumbent behavior that's really key, right? So, and then are you changing customer behavior, right? So when you say like, oh, I'm going to take on and compete against them, you're basically saying, okay, you know, I'm trying to get these folks to change from shorts to jeans, to change from loose fabric to tight fabric, right? You know? to choose from a relatively less, relatively breathable fabric to a very breathable fabric, you know? So those are all customer behaviors are going to be happening to be thinking about when you talk about this market fit. In general, I recommend using it as an XY market landscape. Um, we'll sh talk about that, but it's basically one of those like two by twos that talk about which are the two most important dimensions that are really important that differentiate you from other people. And of course, thinking about how you as a result are competitive, what makes you strong, what makes you less, uh, what are you concerned about, what areas are you not targeting, so and so forth, right? So for many uh, technical homeware, you know, brands for men, a lot of them are saying like, hey, we're never going to be as competitive as Lululemon. That's why we're targeting males, right? For this category, because we don't have a competitive advantage against them. But we do believe there's a small niche that we do have a competitive advantage against everybody else. What's key for you to be thinking about is, of course, you should be selling that you are 10x better, not just 3x better, 1.5x better. That being said, being thoughtful about actually whether you are actually 10x better is super key, right? For that customer, for that niche, for that moment. It's super key. Yeah? So, uh, Next, we're going to talk about financials. Super complicated, but I'm going, to, I'm going to assume that everyone will figure out eventually. But the question is, how do you make money? In terms of revenue streams, is it pricing? Is it flat fee, et cetera? Is it recurring? Is there a big difference between gross versus net? Is it high volume versus low volume? You know, what's the basic math that's there? So show the math, right? One times two times three, right? Equals six, right? 100 clients times... You know, they buy two toothbrushes a year times $3 per toothbrush equals to like, you know, $600, right? So be thoughtful about how you lay out that math, right? Um, and how it's going to flow from point A to point B. And then tell us, talk about how much you're spending, right? Why, how much do you take to spend to buy one customer? So if you want someone to buy a toothbrush, you're creating a direct-to-consumer toothbrush startup and you expect to sell $10 worth of toothbrushes, you know, $6 toothbrush and I don't know, $4 of toothpaste to the person, $10 a year. Then you have to be thoughtful and say like, hey, my average cost to acquire a customer should be hopefully be less than $10, right? 
because you know if I give if I spend twelve dollars to sell someone something for ten dollars, I'm losing two dollars on every customer, right? So being thoughtful about how you're spending money is there, and eventually, you know, we're not getting too too deep into it. But talk about how you can articulate lifetime value versus the customer acquisition cost of your customer, and what that basically means is that at the end of the day, when I give you buy you with you know, you're not only buying $10 or two brushes this year, but maybe next year you buy 10 and then third you buy 10 and on average you stay for three years, right? So on average, you have, you will buy $30 of services for me. And on average, it costs me $5 to find you, to persuade you to buy this from me versus buying this from Colgate uh, or other players out there. And so my lifetime value is $30. My acquisition cost is $5. So the multiple of lifetime value to the CAC will be 30 divided by five, which equals to six. What's important for you to be thinking about all the time is that if you're running a business as an operator owner, is that you should normally be aiming for this multiple to be three on average, right? So um, you should be earning at least $10, for example, of profit, by the way, not value, right? Not price, but value, profit, um, for every $3 that you spend to acquire them. So that means you make $7 eventually, and maybe that's over one year, two years, three years, right? But there's something to be thoughtful about all the time. And lastly, you know, uh, make sure to ask for money, right? So that's why you're busy pitching, right? Or ask for people to join you or ask for people to support you and accept your grant. So how much, cap in this case, we're talking about VC, how much capital are you looking to raise? 500 grand, two mil, three mil, whatever it is, your investment terms. So uh, what are the terms of the investment? What's the price of that capital that you're looking for? Uh, and also be thoughtful about sharing about what's the investment history, right? Were there previous investors? Are they still coming along? Do you like them? You know, something to think about that, right? What are the previous investment terms that were there? And lastly, how do you intend to use the proceeds uh, to achieve uh, that? So how do you intend to use like you know, 100 grand grant? $500,000 seed round, you know, two to three to $4 million series A, how are you going to use that capital? And what's important for this, I would add is a lot of people take this proceeds and they talk about who they're spending it on. Like, you know, they're going to spend it on sales and marketing or technology. And I think that's important to talk about. But what's really important to share this slide is what milestones or what experiments are you going to run with this capital and what learnings are we looking to understand that get reflected into the fundamental value of the company? So if I'm giving you a million dollars, you're saying, you can say like, oh, I'm spending it half on people and half on technology, right? Okay, the answer. But I'm always saying is if you give me a million dollars, I'm using this to understand three things about market. I'm trying to understand if we can get this technology to run within 10 milliseconds, right? Number two, to find out if doctors want to buy it. And if they buy it, you know, how long will they stay? Uh, buying it, what's the lifetime value, for example. So those are the three milestones I'm trying to achieve. These are three learnings I'm trying to achieve. This is $1 million. And these investors are basically saying, I'm going to give you a million dollars to go find out this experiment, find out, achieve these milestones. And if you don't achieve those milestones, then that's okay. Then if it's, you figure out the failure milestones or experiments early enough and fast enough, then you can always use the capital to change your logic chain and figure out a new business, a new approach to selling the customers. Uh, or if you don't figure it out uh, or you take too slow to do it, then you run our runway and then 
the company doesn't make it and that's okay. It happens. So overall, uh, that was a, hopefully a dive into a pitch deck on each slide, with the key learnings on each slide uh, to be thoughtful about. Uh, and what I'm just going to do is uh, give you some stories about pitches I've done in the past in terms of reflections, and then I will go into Q&A. So this is also a good time for you, again, in the Zoom chat to pull up the question Q&A session and ask any questions uh, or to um, upvote uh, any questions that you prefer me to answer, and I'll go through that. So this is a good time for that. So in terms of pitching reflections, um, you know, I remember pitching um, Conjunct Consulting, which is a social enterprise. So someone was talking about social entrepreneurship, right? So I choose that story. Um, and today it feels like a no-brainer. So I, I, you have no idea how many people come up to me and say, Jeremy, my, I want to create a Conjunct Consulting of, you know, coding. Right? I want to create, create Conjunct Consulting for ABC, right? Uh, and I remember that when I first came out with that, um, I knew that it could work because I had seen it work in the US and I had appreciated and been part of that community in my university. And so that had been a transformation experience for me. And so I coming back to Singapore, I actually co-founded it with my co-founder, Jia uh, Chuan. Uh, he was my NS buddy. So we dug trenches together uh, in the rain. Um, and if you have the, if it's a three-man trench that you're digging and only you and him are the only two digging and the third one is just not doing anything, you become very, very good friends because you realize that you can count on each other and you, know, you can't rely on the third person effectively. And so coming back, we decided to build this together because we didn't exist. Uh, and we had no idea how hard it was, et cetera. And I ended up pitching and I actually have that first email where I basically put together like, you know, the thing and so, so forth. And you know, I emailed it to like hundreds of people, right? You know, and we were using, you know, I emailed uh, at a time there were Yahoo groups and Google groups. You know, that's a crazy time to say. Um, and I pasted on Facebook and all these things and to say like, hey, I'm doing this idea. And literally like thousands of people just ignored me. <laughs> they were just like, saw it and they were just like, <laughs> delete, right? Because it wasn't interesting to them. Um, and I remember that we got about 30 people to show up across two days, like info session to fast the pitch in ver verbally. And I remember building a deck beforehand, talk about the company and the mission and so, so forth. Uh, and we finished the slide just right beforehand. And I remember pitching out to all the 30 people and we practiced obviously and so forth. And it sucked. <laughs> It sucked because the truth is out of 30 people, you know, there was only about, I'd say about seven, five to seven of them were like, actually came back to be like, okay, I'm interested in doing something. But only about two to three of them actually said yes to actually helping out and actually helped in any degree. So you think about it, right? From thousands of people that we pitched via email to, you know, the 30 over that showed up for the possession to right, you know, the handful that said, hey, I'm interested in signing up and doing, learning more and doing more after the pitch to, um, you know, the first, you know, one, the second, the third person to actually join, right? Um, and I don't know how I felt about it because at that point in time, it felt sucky, but it felt great because sucky because you're like, oh my God, I embarrassed myself in front of thousands of people and only a handful of people believed. But it also felt great because when you know one person says yes, that's amazing, right? And so I think for me, you know, the reflection from that is just like, you know, pitching is scary all the time, right? Because it's 
fundamentally, it's rejection at scale. What I mean by that is, if I go to my wife and I say, let me pitch to you why my, our daughter is cute. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure she's 100% in agreement that it's going to happen. And I know it's a, what's the word? Crowd pleaser, right? You know, if I build a pitch like that, I'm sure she will say, yes, I agree with you 100%. But for me to do that with more people, um, to do talk about, say, I want to build, in the first case, a social enterprise, I remember people just saying like, I don't believe that nonprofits and charities want to improve and receive consulting services. We don't believe that professionals and students want to work together to um, do consulting projects. We don't believe that you can um, achieve the quality needed for it to be recurring. We don't believe that you can be a you know, financially sustainable social enterprise. And to be frank, I mean, those are very valid questions, right? You know, like, because at that time, what do we have? We had, you know, Zatron and I, uh, and that's it, and a pitch deck. So those are super valid questions, and we were pitching and pitching and pitching. And the truth is, you know what? I think if, you know, 27 out of 30 people said no to it, I think it's a pretty fair ratio, right? Because the truth is, since that time, I've actually seen a lot of social enterprises fail with similar-looking decks, with similar-looking pedigree, uh, but they fail. They just fail to achieve it. And I can tell you that when I was building Conjunct Consulting, it's a giant pain. There were so many times where I could have died, so many times there was just massive mistakes. Um, and so all those concerns were super valid, all those doubts were super valid. So it's very important to think about the pitch. It's not, don't think about when you pitch is that you're pitching to get rejected, but neither should you be going around saying like, oh, the other side is audience is dumb or doesn't get it. And I get it. I'm superior. <laughs> I see the future. They see the past. Um, really think about the pitch as really saying like you articulating these are the things I believe um, and these are things I have to believe are true in order for this to be true and then my job is to communicate it as clearly and simply as possible and then it's up to the market up to people to decide whether they, they opt into it or whether they just opt out right <laughs> you know uh, and that's really important so I think that's my first hour of pitching is my reflection about the fear of rejection and you know the odds, the ratio, the funnel, you could say, which is you have to pitch a lot of people to get even a handful to even be interested and let alone join. And so you have to be comfortable with pitching, pitching, pitching. Don't think to yourself, I'm pitching, I'm learning to pitch one pitch. Don't think you'll say, I'm learning how to pitch to improve my one presentation. The truth is you're learning how to pitch a hundred times the same thing, a thousand times, and you're going to keep improving it. But that's what happens when you do pitching. Um, the second time and the last story I have before we go into Q&A and I'll turn a tab and see how many questions you have um, is, you know, I remember that I was going to hit off to my wedding with uh, my now wife, you know, my then fiance. Uh, and I was busy pitching for a series A for a technology startup, right? Pitching, 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 pitching. And I remember I told my wife and I said, I don't know if we can achieve this goal, <laughs> you know? And if that happens, then we're going to be in trouble, right? Because we have to be thinking through how do we change our burn? Do we have to change our assumptions if we can't get this uh, series A? And, you know, my fiance, whom I had met at the social enterprise, right? That we had, that I had built. Uh, she basically looked at me and she said, Jeremy, if you are trying to propose that we reschedule the wedding, no chance in heck that's happening. If you want to try to marry me again, the ceremony, you're going to wait a long, long time, right? 
And so I said to myself, okay, great. I got to pitch harder, right? You know, uh, motivated, right? Because if I don't pitch and close, then I don't get money, the company folds, and, you know, I don't get married, right? So that's a problem, right? That's an incentive structure problem, incentive structure. Um, but I think one thing that is there is that when you're pitching in different stages is, yeah, you know, um, the way I pitch a technology startup for a series A, it's also very different. And the reason why I was struggling, the reason why I found it difficult when why we mentioned manage to close it was we had to unlearn a bunch of things um, and actually be articulate and say, these are the problems that we care about. And these are things we still don't know. And these are things we do know. And so finding the right investor and finding the right team and finding the right partnership that actually believes in this story, not because they're fools and because your pitch is very good and Wayang slash pantomime slash shadow puppet play that makes it look good. But it's a pitch, just find the right partner for your right business partner that provides you capital. Um, and that's hard to do because, you know, sometimes you have an ego and you're like, okay, I understand this way better than everybody else. But it turns out, you know, the VC, you know, the bank, the people on the other side, they're just as smart as well, right? Uh, and they're smart in their own way, in their own domain. Um, and the other part of it is that it's hard because it requires humility, right? Because it may imply that you build the business in a certain way, but you have not yet proven out certain parts of it. Uh, and that's difficult to do all the time. Uh, and lastly, there's a clock, right? And what I mean by that is when you pitch, you know, you know there's entropy, there's stuff like that. And you always have to be thinking about yourself as like time, 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 time. Um, you're pitching aggressively, you're pitching keep on parallel, you're pitching hard, you're learning how to pitch better and better because time is sometimes your friend and sometimes it's your enemy, right? And so in some ways, when you're burning money, the reason why you see startup founders who are burning a lot of money, but they're very good at fundraising, you have, you have to remember, they fundraise a lot of money, so they burn a lot of money. But when they're burning a lot of money, they are very incentivized to fundraise more and more money because um, time in many ways is their enemy, right? Because they didn't build a strong enough business that is profitable. But if you look at companies that are profitable, so you look at Atlassian, you look at Buffer, you look at Canva, they built a company in a very strong and rigorous way. Um, and because of that, they didn't feel like they had a rush to learn how to pitch. They didn't have a rush to raise venture capital. And they were much more um, thoughtful because time was their friend. Because you know, they wait one more day, they receive you know, thousands of dollars more, right? Uh, so being thoughtful about what you have to learn and unlearn uh, for a technology startup is really key. So on that note, that I wrap up the pitching reflections. Uh, obviously, if you all shared, wrap things up. If you want to learn more from founders, VCs, and rising stars, you know, you can go to jeremyout.com. That's where the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast, you can go to Spotify, Apple, et cetera, and use that time to either listen to something, but primarily what I enjoy in this case is hearing why people, you know, care about something like this. So Jeffrey, you know, he trained startups in North Korea, you know, which is crazy. And now he's building a new business in Vietnam, um, which is really interesting. Uh, so Nurul is a good friend of mine. Uh, she's training Muslim and female tech talent um, in the region. Um, so lots of great stories that are there, the VCs, the founders, et cetera. So feel free to go there to understand anything. So on that note, I'm going to stop my share uh, and look at the questions. Okay, great. So. I am going to share my screen. 
Is my screen? Okay. And this is live, so feel free to keep uh feel free to keep adding questions or uploading stuff, right? And then go from there. Okay, so uh hit the share screen and then kind of go through this. Okay. Um notice the C round you mentioned is about five. Okay. The question is. You mentioned a seed round is $500,000. How far can this support a startup team to grow? How long and how many staff? Okay, so let's just say you build a company that is profitable already. So, you know, you spend $5 and then you make $10 of profit, right? So net, net, net profit is $5, right? So every $5 you put in, you um, $5 more, right? So if you raise a seed round of $500,000, then after you finish deploying it across the one to two years, then you have a million dollars, right? Correct? In that case, a $500,000 seed round could have lasted you uh, for the entire time, right? So this could support you forever. Now, if you choose to raise, you know, you spend... Um, $5, right? Um, and uh, you basically um, only collect $1 back at the end of the day. So you lose $4 in every time you have a customer, right? Then you're losing $4 for every customer in the short term. Then $500,000 by four, you know, gives you, you know, you basically sell to a certain 125 people and then you're all our money, right? So, Something to be thoughtful about is how far can this support startup team to go? It depends on the business you build, right? You know, does that make sense? Um, so being thoughtful about that is how long, how many staff, it just depends on how, what kind of business you're building. Um, so I think, don't think about how much money you raise to how far this startup can go. Like, um, now, what you may have heard is that VCs, the classic model is that every time you raise a venture round, then the goal is for you to make, have that last for about 18 months, right? To two years. So that's maybe what you're kind of implying a little bit here. Um, but I think it's quite dangerous because sometimes what happens is like, okay, I got $500,000. I have to spend it within two years. So that's $250,000. So every month that's like $20,000. Okay, I want to pay myself $5,000. So $15,000 left. So I'm going to spend $15,000 in put it all in marketing, right? I think that's one way to do it, which is like kind of like working backwards, but that assumes that using venture capital, it assumes that your business is rigorous and be able to do it. And it assumes that that is the best allocation of resources. So it's possible to use that approach, um, but it really depends. So the really crux of it is uh, being thoughtful about what that is. Okay. Yeah. All right, that's about it. I think cover everybody. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.